passage this morning, oh, you're in for a good one. We're in Romans. So not only are you going to get a little bit of theology, because that's what the bread and butter of Romans is, but uh, you're going to get a little uh, church history. So it's a double whammy. So we're going to start in Romans chapter 4. Uh, we're going to go verses 1 through 9. Uh, I'm going to skip a little bit and do 13 through 16. Starting in verse 1. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. This is Paul speaking. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds made, had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Now when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Now, this is the blessing. Is this blessing only for the Jews, or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before. Clearly, verse 13, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary, and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to, not, is to have no law to break. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. And we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's, for Abraham is the father of all who believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for the theologically rich book of Romans that we can glean from, we can stand upon as our firm foundation through Christ Jesus. Lord, may these words today not come from me, but your Holy Spirit speaking through me. Lord, prepare our hearts that you may speak to us in new ways, give us new insights, uh, and pierce our hearts with your truth. In Christ's name, amen. So let's give a little background of the book of Romans. Like I said before, it's written by the Apostle Paul. Now, who is Paul? There's actually a little 
inside joke that I have with Laurie and a group of friends of ours. Remember Super Jew? <laughs> Paul, I like to describe as a Super Jew. <laughs> Paul, everything Paul did, he did to the nth degree. He was so passionate about everything that he did. So remember, he was a Pharisee before he came to Christ, which is, is pretty powerful in and of itself. They were, they were um, very devout, very passionate about what they believed. Let's say that. And then what happens? The Lord Jesus himself reveals himself to Paul as he's on the road uh, to Damascus. Knocks him down, blinds him. Says, Saul, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? He has this personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it changes his whole world, changes his life. He spins around, and he becomes the Apostle Paul, which pretty much writes most of the New Testament. <laughs> like I said, he's... He's a super, now he's a super Christian. <laughs> <laughs> and in the book of Romans, he, this is during the middle of his um, missionary journeys. He's, he goes around, and it is his mission to start churches. He goes from persecuting the church of Jesus to starting them with help. And so all these letters that we have in the New Testament, the, the epistles, are letters that he writes to these churches that he starts, or some of the other uh, disciples or apostles start um, dealing, he deals with um, certain problems they, that they might be going through. And in this section of Romans that we find ourselves in, and, and starting in chapter 4, it's, it's in the middle of this group that Paul is um, teaching and trying to convince them of justification. Now, justification is this big Bible college word that you may or may not have heard of. But the short definition of justification is that it is the act of making someone right with God. And we see it sprinkled all throughout this passage in words like, in phrases like, Verse 1, being made right with God. He goes on, made him acceptable to God. God counted him as righteous. Even in, uh, when he references David, whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Counted as righteous by God. Counted as righteous. Ex God accepted Abraham. All these phrases are, he's kind of beating this dead horse of justification. This is, this is what he's, he's referring to. Um, justification is, if you think about it, this, this act of being made, made right before a holy God. It's, it's the heart of the gospel. Let's go back to Genesis. Why do we need to be made right with God? Sin, right? On one hand, you have sinful humanity from the fall, back in Genesis, this schism, this separation, and you have a holy God on the other side. Um, we know and we affirm the doctrine of original sin. Um, it's actually 
uh, taught very heavily, also sp spread throughout the Book of Romans. Um, if you grew up in a in church, you probably heard the Romans Road, right? It's, it's like a condensed version of how we like to some people uh, explain the gospel. So in it, we have verses like Romans five twelve. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. And that reminds me of another Romans Road passage, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know this. We have a problem. We have a sin problem. And because of that, that separates us from a holy God. And now the act of justification is how do we... How do we reconcile this? How do we bring these two, humanity and God, how do we bring them back together and have a right relationship with each other like it was in the garden? That's justification. Um, Patty talked and uh, had a great exposition from Ephesians 2 last week. And we even see it in there. Um, Paul says in verse 1 of Ephesians 2, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin like the rest of the world, obeying the adversary, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. I love that phrase in there, from verse 1. Dead in sin. And if anybody knows me well enough, I could probably deliver a whole sermon just on that phrase alone. It's, it's rich. It's very... There's a lot to it. How once sin entered the world... We're not sick. We're not maimed in sin. We're dead in sin. So, how do we get there? How does sinful humanity be reconciled to a holy God? Justification. Now, lots of people have come up with the process this, this process of justification, this, this act of being made right with God. Um, for the Jews, uh, it was the law, right? We talked about um, the old Mosaic covenant, the if and then covenant. If you obey my commandments, then you will be blessed. If you do not obey all these commands, you, then you will be cursed, right? And Paul talks about the law in our Romans 4 passage. Um, back in the 16th century, the 1500s, Rome was the center, the heartbeat of the Christ, Christian church back then. And there was a German monk named Martin Luther. And so one day, Martin Luther decides that he's going to make a pilgrimage to Rome because that is what we do in the 16th century to um, gain merit. 
It's their, their vision. This is their God box, like we talked about before, of, of how we can see God, how we can, be, we can try to understand the doctrine of justification. So Martin Luther, from Germany, goes and makes his pilgrimage to Rome. They had a practice back then of, um, if you were to go and visit certain relics of the church, um, say some prayers, then that would fit their God box of justification a little bit. And so Martin Luther goes to a certain church in Rome where the church claims to have the steps that Christ himself rose to be judged by Pontius Pilate. And the saying goes that it is, if you were to make your pilgrimage to Rome and were to walk the steps or kneel the steps, say the prayers, then you would gain merit. And so that's exactly what this German monk did. And as it happens, he gets to the top and light dawns on him. He asks himself, what am I doing? Is, is this, does this even work? So he goes back to Germany. He digs through the scriptures. And as many of you know, the story of the Protestant Reformation, he, through his digging, through his research in the scriptures, he pens a, almost a letter to the church in Latin, because that is the language of the church in the 16th century. It's called the 95 Theses. It's very famous. And as legend has it, he nails it on the church door of Wittenberg, Germany. It was, it was like he was sending the church an email. This is, this is what it was equivalent to. It wasn't, he didn't mean to go and start a revolution, a whole Protestant reformation. He was, he had some grievances. He had some questions about how the church was operating, about their God box of justification at the time. And wouldn't you know it, some of his students got wind of this. They took the 95 Theses, they translated it from the Latin into the modern tongue, the tongue of the people, German, and started distributing it through a brand new invention from Germany, the Gutenberg printing press. Well, praise God, they did that. Because this was the spark that lighted, that lit, that's not a word, <laughs> the Protestant Reformation. And that is why we have Protestant churches to this day. We are proclaimed a Protestant church. And it includes, it includes the, the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Baptists. We are Protestant churches. We stem our convictions from the Reformation. Now there were five pillars of the Protestant Reformation, kind of like their, their articles of faith on which they stood. And they're all in Latin because that was the language of the church. They believed in justification through sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Sola Christus, 
in Christ alone. Sola Scriptura, found in Scripture alone. And Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. So it is one of those pillars, Sola Fide, that I'd like to talk about this morning. And that's what Paul, I believe, is getting at in Romans 4. The doctrine of justification through faith alone. Now, it must have been a hard concept, because obviously it was a hard concept to grasp in the 16th century. For most of us, it's a hard concept to grasp now. So the Church of Rome, to whom Paul was writing, was filled with um, Jewish Christians as well as Gentile Christians in the city of Rome. He appeals to the Jewish Christians in the Church of Rome by referencing the father of Judaism, Abraham. Verses 1 through 3. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Here Paul has to refute the justification by works uh, doctrine here. He says it over and over and over and over again. And it's not even repeated in this passage that we have here of a dozen or so verses, it is found all throughout the book of Romans, all throughout his epistles to the different churches that he writes. Now, what did Abraham do? Jay, uh, thanks, buddy. He, uh, he read that for us, the story of Father Abraham, how this act of faith. Abraham was a wealthy guy. Way, 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 way back. He had everything going for him. He had the flocks. He had the herds. He, he, he had it made. He had his own community. He had his family. And then one day, on a Tuesday afternoon, at 2.30 in the afternoon, <laughs> God shows up out of the blue. Abram, go. Go where? He doesn't even tell him. Just says go. And what does Abram do? Packs up his things. He believes God. And he goes. That's the faith that Paul is talking about. Now, it wasn't the act of giving everything up and moving in and of itself. But it was the reason behind it. I'm sure if we had this shocking revelation from God himself one day on a random Tuesday afternoon, or however it was, would we be willing to trust God with that after we have our community, we have our church, we have our friends, we have our jobs, we have our comforts, we have Hannaford, and we know where everything is? That's a big one for me. Don't go changing Hannaford, people. <laughs> I know where everything is. I'm in and out. I'm good. I'm comfortable. <clears throat> No, I don't think too many of us would have this faith that Abraham had to just pick everything up 
and move. Why did Abraham leave? Because he believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted to him. It's a very, um, justification is a very economic or, or like a banking term. You can think of it as, as like, a, a, like a credit card balance or like a checking account balance. Not only do we have zero balance in our account because of this sin nature that we all affirm, but we have a negative balance. And here, the work of Christ, he came to not abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill the law. He came, he fulfilled the law. He had a perfect, righteous life. And so if you think about it, if we're thinking about this act of justification as, as the economic term, we can think of Jesus' bank account as the millionaire. And so how do we, how do we tap into that? That's, that is that justification of, okay, I have a debt that I can never hope to pay back in a million years. And we have the righteousness of Jesus who came and died for us. Paul goes on later in his epistles and he explains that this act of justification is when we put our faith in Christ. This righteousness is, big Bible college word, imputed to us. It means God, because we believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God takes the righteousness of Christ and puts it to our account. We are being made right with God. We are counted as righteous, as Paul says, whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. That act of faith justifies Abraham before the Holy God. Verse 4. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared sin. Here Paul argues and begs justification by faith and not works, even stronger. He says when you work, you earn a wage, right? That's the contract that you have with your employer. You don't work for free, they pay you. So that is what you are owed when you work for your employer, right? And this is what Paul gets at. He's like, this is not what is going on here when we're talking about the doctrine of justification. Sometimes we can confuse this economic transaction with our spiritual life. Like, oh, so I, I do these works and God 
owes it to me. When I do X, Y, and Z, God is therefore obligated to give me such and such. But that is a very dangerous and slippery road when we start thinking that way. As soon as we think God is obligated to give us anything, we have lost what grace really means. So Paul appeals further with this quote from King David, another giant of the Jewish faith. See how he's appealing to the Jewish believers in Rome. Justification, um, therefore, is transactional, like we were talking about. It is the act of God placing the mega positive balance of Christ and adding it to our account so that we can be acceptable to God. Not only do we have our negative balance taken away, but we have a positive balance to borrow this economic term of David and Paul's. All right, verse 9. Now, is this blessing only for Jews, or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. So now Paul is getting at, okay, we've laid some foundation about what justification should look like. Now, who is this applied to? Is it for the Jews only? Maybe this was a controversy in the Church of Rome that he has to settle. Maybe this is something they were wrestling with. Was it for the Jews only? Paul says, no. If you're, see, circumcision in the old law was a sign of your faith. This is how God separated his people from the others. This is the sign. It's not because we are, this is not uh, the means of justification. This is the outward sign of God putting his hand on his people and saying, you are mine. We do this in the New Covenant as well with baptism, right? This is our outward sign. When we have our faith in Jesus Christ, we are baptized. We are, this is the outward show of, yes, I am making this decision. I am putting my faith in Christ and I want everyone to know it. Did this outward sign of circumcision justify Abraham? No, of course not. That's what Paul's getting at. He was actually counted righteous, and all this happened, this act of faith that Jay read for us in the book of Genesis, this happened before the act of circumcision. And this is the mystery of the gospel, right, that Paul writes about later. It's sprinkled throughout his letters. The mystery of the gospel is that now God, God's people is not the Jews only. Through Jesus Christ, the foot of the cross is level for all people. All people are accepted to God through faith 
in Christ. Clearly we see here that outward signs, whether it's the circumcision for the Jews or baptism for Christians, is not what justifies us, but what shows people that we are justified. Let's move on to verse 13. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law, I love this, the only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. Paul outlines justification arguments of the Old Covenant. Remember the then, the if, and then covenant. It was very much based on what one did. It was um, the outline that God gave his people that we see actually further points to Christ, when Christ fulfills all of this law. But this is how God, the outline God gives his people of how to follow him. Do works of the law justify us? Circumcision? Baptism? Keeping kosher? Following the law? Eating this and not that? Going to this place and not that place? Watching this movie and not that movie? No. The point of the law was to point out your sin, not to save you from it. Paul teaches that obviously no one can keep the law except Christ who came to fulfill it. That's why we have Christ's righteousness. It was, the, it was the framework to show us how broken a people we really are that we cannot measure up, we cannot fulfill. And now in verse 16, this is Paul's big finish. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. And we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, but if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. I believe it's in the book of Galatians, where Paul teaches there, there is no more Jew or Greek. We are all one in Christ. I love that saying, the foot is level at the cross. No one is better than anyone else, and all are welcome. Here he finishes his argument that he started back in verse 9. With it, is it by the law? No. 
It is for all who believe. Now, Abraham wasn't just the father of the Jewish people, but all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And even Jesus came up against this argument in his day. When he was talking with the religious leaders, and they said, but we are of our father Abraham, right? What did Jesus say? Guys, you are missing the point. God can make children of Abraham from these rocks. It's not the point. No, you are actually of your father, the adversary. Sin isn't a Jewish problem, it's a humanity problem. We see this from way back in Genesis. And Paul harps on it, and he teaches, and he teaches, and he teaches this doctrine. Original sin. If you're a human, then you are separated. This is this chasm, this separation. You are in need of justification. To be made right unto God. Paul teaches this as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Received by faith, the act of justification, when we believe Jesus died for our sins, fulfilled the law, imparting on us who believe his righteousness. Now, Paul beats this dead horse for a reason. We see it over and over and over and over again. Why? Because this is very important. This is an important doctrine. Back in the Hebrew language, the use of repetition was a, uh, was a tool that writers would use to convey importance. They said it multiple times. You better listen up. It is very, very important. Justification as Martin Luther says, is the article by which the church stands or falls. Now I want to leave you with the last lines of Luther's statement before the, it was called the Diet of Worms. It was a, a council that he was paraded in front of, he was led to, to recant his teachings is um, negative, according to the church at the time, teachings of doctor, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And this is what he says. Since your most serene majesty and your highness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the Council, because it is clear that they have fallen into error and even into inconsistency with themselves. If then, I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I can, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. 
Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Mm -hmm. You can go and get your kids. We're going to have a time of communion. And then we're going to uh, stand and have worship and song a little bit more. <coughs> Thanks, Christopher. <laughs> get my phone. Thank you.